Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Michael Beerer. This week, January 25, 2024, we feature articles on daratumumab in myeloma therapy, the early treatment of patent ductus arteriosus with ibuprofen, measurable residual disease in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, hospital prices for physician-administered drugs, and Asian Americans and Racial Justice in Medicine, a review article on wearable technologies in cardiovascular medicine, a case report of an infant with inconsolable crying and weakness, and perspective articles on minding the gap, on transforming population health, and on the heartbeat. Daratumumab, bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone for multiple myeloma by Peter Sonnefeld from the Erasmus MC Cancer Institute, Rotterdam, the Netherlands, and co-authors. Daratumumab, a monoclonal antibody targeting CD38, has been approved for use with standard myeloma regimens. In this phase three trial, 709 transplantation-eligible patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma were randomly assigned to receive either subcutaneous daratumumab added to bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, VRD, induction and consolidation therapy, and added to lenalidomide maintenance therapy, the daratumumab group, or the standard regimen of VRD induction and consolidation therapy and lenalidomide maintenance therapy alone, the VRD group. At a median follow-up of 47.5 months, the risk of disease progression or death in the daratumumab group was lower than the risk in the VRD group. The estimated percentage of patients with progression-free survival at 48 months was 84.3% in the daratumumab group and 67.7% in the VRD group. The percentage of patients with a complete response or better was higher in the daratumumab group than in the VRD group, 87.9% versus 70.1%, as was the percentage of patients with minimal residual disease, MRD, negative status, 75.2% versus 47.5%. Death occurred in 34 patients in the daratumumab group and 44 patients in the VRD group. Grade 3 or 4 adverse events occurred in most patients in both groups. The most common were neutropenia and thrombocytopenia. Serious adverse events occurred in 57% of the patients in the daratumumab group and 49.3% of those in the VRD group. The addition of subcutaneous daratumumab to VRD induction and consolidation therapy and to lenalidomide maintenance therapy conferred a significant benefit with respect to progression-free survival among transplantation-eligible patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. In an editorial, Edward Stottmauer from the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, writes that the results of this trial by Sonnefeld and colleagues corroborate those of the Griffin study, a phase two study of a similar design, and clearly show that the addition of daratumumab enhances the efficacy of standard first-line therapy for transplantation-eligible patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma, and that this quadruplet therapy appears to be safe and feasible and did not impede proceeding to transplantation. 
Several unanswered questions remain, however. For example, would the substitution of the next-generation proteasome inhibitor carfilzomib for bortezomib improve outcomes? Perhaps most importantly, when we compare first-line therapies for myeloma, overall survival is the standard outcome measure rather than progression-free survival or MRD-negative status. We should not discount the benefits of long progression-free survival, but we must also consider the toxic effects, financial burden, and quality of life over many years of therapy. In subsequent analyses of overall survival in the trial by Sonnefeld and colleagues, access to second-line daratumumab-based therapy in the VRD group should be reported to inform our understanding of whether differences in overall survival are attributable specifically to the use of first-line daratumumab-based therapy or to a lack of future access to second-line daratumumab-based therapy. Nevertheless, it is not realistic to wait years for overall survival benefits to materialize when treatment decisions are needed now for our patients. This is a golden age of treatments for patients with myeloma. The vast majority of patients with newly diagnosed disease can expect a rapid, deep, and durable response to therapies with good safety profiles. A cure requires more work. But with the results of this trial and the continuing development of active targeted therapies, the future remains bright. Trial of Selective Early Treatment of Patent Ductus Arteriosus with Ibuprofen by Samir Gupta from Sidra Medicine, Doha, Cutter, and co-authors. The cyclooxygenase inhibitor ibuprofen may be used to treat patent ductus arteriosus, PDA, in preterm infants. This trial evaluated short-term outcomes with early treatment, 72 hours or earlier after birth, with ibuprofen for a large PDA, diameter of 1.5 millimeters or greater with pulsatile flow, in extremely preterm infants, born between 23 weeks, 0 days, and 28 weeks, 6 days gestation. 326 infants were assigned to receive ibuprofen and 327 to receive placebo. A primary outcome event of a composite of death or moderate or severe bronchopulmonary dysplasia evaluated at 36 weeks of postmenstrual age occurred in 69.2% of infants in the ibuprofen group and in 63.5% of infants in the placebo group. 13.6% of infants in the ibuprofen group and 10.3% of infants in the placebo group died. Among the infants who survived to 36 weeks of postmenstrual age, moderate or severe bronchopulmonary dysplasia occurred in 64.2% of the infants in the ibuprofen group and in 59.3% of the infants in the placebo group. Two unforeseeable serious adverse events occurred that were possibly related to ibuprofen. The risk of death or moderate or severe bronchopulmonary dysplasia at 36 weeks of postmenstrual age was not significantly lower among infants who received early treatment with ibuprofen than among those who received placebo. Jill Marin from Women and Infants Hospital of Rhode Island, Providence, 
writes in an editorial that the results of the trial by Gupta and colleagues indicated that early targeted use of ibuprofen offered no benefit in reducing the risk of a primary outcome event of death or moderate or severe bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Despite its negative findings, the trial provides important information. With more than half of the enrolled patients born at less than 26 weeks gestation and an absence of notable serious adverse events, early parenteral administration of the drug appeared to be safe in this high-risk population and might ultimately reduce the need for surgical or transcatheter closure. The trial also highlights the numerous confounders that are inherently linked to trials involving PDA closure. Even minor variations in the timing of drug delivery, non-standardized dosing regimens and routes of administration, receipt of open-label treatment, and exposure to drugs that affect duct patency all contribute to the difficulty in interpreting results in even the most well-designed trials. These ongoing limitations impair our ability to identify the appropriate therapeutic approach, leaving neonatologists and cardiologists to continue to grapple with choosing among courses of action for timely and effective PDA closure, including doing nothing at all. Chronic lymphocytic leukemia therapy guided by measurable residual disease by Talha Munir from the Leeds Cancer Center, United Kingdom, and co-authors. The combination of ibrutinib and venetoclax has been shown to improve outcomes in patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL, as compared with chemoimmunotherapy. This study evaluated whether ibrutinib venetoclax and personalization of treatment duration according to measurable residual disease, MRD, is more effective than fludarabine cyclophosphamide rituximab, FCR. 523 patients with untreated CLL were randomly assigned to the ibrutinib venetoclax group or the ibrutinib monotherapy with FCR group. At a median of 43.7 months, disease progression or death had occurred in 12 patients in the ibrutinib venetoclax group and 75 patients in the FCR group, hazard ratio 0.13. Death occurred in 9 patients in the ibrutinib venetoclax group and 25 patients in the FCR group, hazard ratio 0.31. At 3 years, 58% of the patients in the ibrutinib venetoclax group had stopped therapy owing to undetectable MRD. After five years of ibrutinib venetoclax therapy, 65.9% of the patients had undetectable MRD in the bone marrow and 92.7% had undetectable MRD in the peripheral blood. The risk of infection was similar in the ibrutinib venetoclax group and the FCR group. The percentage of patients with serious cardiac adverse events was higher in the ibrutinib venetoclax group than in the FCR group. 10.7% versus 0.4%. MRD-directed ibrutinib venetoclax improved progression-free survival as compared with FCR and results for overall survival also favored ibrutinib venetoclax. Hospital prices for physician-administered drugs for patients with private insurance by James Robinson 
from the University of California, Berkeley, and co-authors. Hospitals can leverage their position between the ultimate buyers and sellers of drugs to retain a substantial share of insurer pharmaceutical expenditures. Hospitals can reduce what they pay to manufacturers for the drugs, especially if they are eligible for 340B discounts, and can increase what they are paid for the drugs by imposing markups on the reimbursement prices they charge the insurers. These investigators analyzed national Blue Cross Blue Shield claims data that included 404,443 patients in the United States who had over 4,500,000 drug infusion visits for oncologic conditions, inflammatory conditions, or blood cell deficiency disorders. The median price markup, defined as the ratio of the reimbursement price to the acquisition price for hospitals eligible for 340B discounts, was 3.08. After adjustments for drug, patient, and geographic factors, price markups at hospitals eligible for 340B discounts were 6.59 times as high as those in independent physician practices, and price markups at non-eligible hospitals were 4.34 times as high as those in physician practices. Hospitals eligible for 340B discounts retained 64.3% of insurer drug expenditures, whereas hospitals not eligible for 340B discounts retained 44.8%, and independent physician practices retained 19.1%. This study showed that hospitals imposed large price markups and retained a substantial share of total insurer spending on physician-administered drugs for patients with private insurance. The effects were especially large for hospitals eligible for discounts under the federal 340B drug pricing program on acquisition costs paid to manufacturers. Wearable Digital Health Technologies for Monitoring in Cardiovascular Medicine, a review article by Erica Spatz from Yale School of Medicine, New Haven, Connecticut, and co-authors. Atrial fibrillation affects 1 in 25 adults over 60 years of age and 1 in 10 adults over 80 years of age. Atrial fibrillation may go undetected for long periods of time and may become apparent only when symptoms develop such as those in the context of prolonged tachycardia leading to pulmonary venous congestion and a decline in ejection fraction, or a thromboembolic stroke. Even after a rate control or rhythm control strategy is implemented, an ongoing risk for recurrent atrial fibrillation and worsening heart failure may affect quality of life and survival. Ongoing monitoring combined with oral anticoagulation to prevent stroke and maintain sinus rhythm has shown benefits with regard to disease progression, hospitalization, and survival. In a traditional care model, the patient would be scheduled for regular visits to assess her blood pressure, weight, and cardiac rhythm, which would provide single time point data to consider in deciding whether to adjust the guideline-directed medical therapy. Even frequent visits may be mistimed and ineffective for identifying disease progression and meeting medical therapy goals. 
The goal of remote patient monitoring is to use remotely collected and transmitted health data to improve outcomes by capturing lifestyle behaviors that patients could change, such as sleep and activity, controlling risk factors, and detecting clinical deterioration or a change in health status before it worsens. This review focuses on the use of digital wearable technologies for monitoring of three common cardiovascular conditions, hypertension, heart failure, and atrial fibrillation. Clinicians are interested in the potential for remote patient monitoring and wearable technologies to increase the efficiency and efficacy of cardiovascular disease management. Yet to date, the uptake has been limited. An eight-week-old male infant with inconsolable crying and weakness. A case record of the Massachusetts General Hospital by Adam Berkwit and co-authors. An eight-week-old male infant was admitted to the pediatric ICU with irritability. Seven days earlier, irritability and frequent crying developed. One day before the current presentation, the episodes of crying increased in duration and the patient's grandmother noticed that he cried more intensely when the right side of his abdomen was touched. The patient was evaluated at a pediatric primary care clinic. The vital signs and physical examination were reportedly normal, and a diagnosis of discomfort due to gastrointestinal gas was considered. After the patient returned home, he had a crying episode that lasted for multiple hours while he was awake. That night, the crying continued, and the patient became inconsolable. He had frantic movements of the arms and legs and slept only one hour. The patient was brought to the emergency department, where he remained irritable and did not attain a calm, awake state. After admission to the hospital, lethargy, hypoxemia, and hypotonia rapidly developed. Despite the use of a systematic approach, there was no obvious cause of irritability on the basis of the initial patient history and the findings on physical examination, laboratory testing, and imaging. Infant botulism is a disease of the neuromuscular junction that fit very well with this patient's presentation. He had many of the associated signs and symptoms, including irritability, constipation, features of bulbar palsies, a weak cry, ptosis in both eyes, and poor feeding, lethargy, weakness, and respiratory difficulties. Testing of a stool specimen for botulinum neurotoxin confirmed the diagnosis. On further interviewing, the patient's family members reported that when the infant appeared to have abdominal discomfort, honey was given to try to soothe him. Asian Americans and Racial Justice in Medicine a Medicine and Society article by Michelle Koh from the University of California, Davis, and co-authors. In the past three years, the renewed racial justice movement in the U.S. has prompted medical leaders to take long-overdue steps toward recognition of racism in our profession and institutions. Recent developments, from the rise of anti-Asian violence, including violence against healthcare professionals, to the recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling against affirmative action in Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA, versus Harvard, and SFFA versus University of North Carolina, 
have highlighted the need to advance discussions specifically about the positionality, one's individual social identities and the intersection of those identities and statuses with systems of privilege and oppression of Asian Americans within the medical profession and their roles and responsibilities in disrupting the racialized hierarchy within American medicine. Asian Americans account for approximately one-fifth of all U.S. physicians, academic medical faculty, students, and trainees. Asian Americans in the general U.S. population trace their origins to more than 34 countries, and their socioeconomic status varies more widely than that of any other racialized group. Asian American physicians and trainees, in conjunction with high representation, face high levels of harassment and discrimination from peers, supervisors, staff, and patients. The rise in anti-Asian violence, specifically targeting healthcare workers, and the lack of systematic responses represents an escalation of pre-existing trends. Organized medicine has not offered adequate opportunity for Asian Americans to acknowledge and heal from interpersonal and structural racial trauma. Within the profession, Asian Americans are the exemplars for diversity without inclusion. Mind the Gap, Machine Learning, Data Set Shift, and History in the Age of Clinical Algorithms, a perspective by Andrew Lee from Brigham and Women's Hospital and David Jones from Harvard Medical School, both in Boston. AAP Help was one of the first computerized diagnostic programs created during the mainframe era of the 1950s to 1970s. British surgeon F.T. de Dombal and his University of Leeds colleagues developed AAP help to assist in the diagnosis of patients with acute abdominal pain. They used a mathematical formula that had attracted substantial interest in the post-war period, Bayes' theorem. De Dombal's team collected data on thousands of patients who presented with acute abdominal pain. The researchers used data on clinical symptoms, such as pain severity, location, and quality, and physical signs like pulse and abdominal guarding to derive probabilities for the computer system. When the resulting computer algorithm was tested on roughly 300 patients who presented to the General Infirmary in 1971, the program dazzled. According to the team's report, AAP Help generated the correct diagnosis in 91.8% of cases, surpassing the performance of senior clinicians. Then, Dadambal introduced it to hospitals outside Leeds. But when his group teamed up with researchers at Bispebjerg Hospital in Copenhagen in 1976 to test the system in a fresh clinical environment, its overall accuracy plummeted to 65%. The problem wasn't the system's hardware or software. Instead, it was its data. The population used to develop AAP help differed in critical ways from the population in which it was subsequently implemented. The incongruities meant that the conditional probabilities underlying AAP help were inaccurate for patients in Copenhagen. De Dombal's troubled efforts to bring his computerized system across the North Sea led him to a powerful conclusion. Databases don't travel. 
The non-transferable nature of the leads data prefigured current challenges related to dataset shift as machine learning algorithms spread throughout clinical practice. The training data used to create AI algorithms from early machine learning models for diagnosing diabetic retinopathy to newer generative AI models have a past and a specificity. History illuminates the persistent challenge of dataset shift in medicine and offers tools for contextualizing data and anticipating and mitigating dataset shift today. Transforming Population Health ARPA-H's new program targeting broken incentives, a perspective by Darshak Sanghavi from the Department of Health and Human Services and Dawn Alley from George Washington University, both in Washington, D.C. Despite spending more per capita on health care than any other country, the United States lags behind other high-income countries on crucial health outcomes, including life expectancy and maternal mortality. In addition, disparities based on race, ethnicity, and income persist. Although nearly half the burden of disability and death in the United States may be associated with modifiable risk factors, misaligned economic incentives in the U.S. health system lead to an emphasis on individually focused interventions that respond to acute needs rather than community-based prevention. There is currently no mechanism that provides incentives or rewards for improving population health in entire communities. To address this need, the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, ARPA-H, recently announced its first program focused on innovation in the area of population health. Healthcare Rewards to Achieve Improved Outcomes, HEROES. Authorized in 2022, ARPA-H has received $2.5 billion in funding and has invested approximately $1 billion in various moonshot projects. Contracts have focused principally on high-tech programs, such as accelerated vaccine development, new approaches to regrowing joints in people with osteoarthritis, and augmented imaging for improving cancer surgery. The authors hope that heroes will demonstrate the value and feasibility of realigning incentives to focus on population-wide illness prevention. Heartbeat, a perspective by Marsha Glass from Tulane University School of Medicine, New Orleans. Dr. Glass had felt constantly nauseated and could feel her body changing as it went through the first stages of pregnancy. On the day of her first pregnancy ultrasound, the doctor, friendly and efficient, pulled down her drape and applied gel to her abdomen. Dr. Glass watched on the screen next to her as the images came up. She waited to hear a heartbeat. But instead, her doctor said carefully, let me see if I can get a better look with a transvaginal. Something wasn't right. Dr. Glass was far enough along that the doctor should have been able to get a good look. Dr. Glass suddenly felt freezing cold. Her doctor's response was pitch perfect. She sat with Dr. Glass for almost an hour. Dr. Glass decided that night to shake it all off. She took the mesoprostol tablets and waited for everything to bleed and cramp its way out. 
The pain of all the bits coming out of her was sinister, but she figured it would be over soon. She didn't ask for time off from work. In four years of medical school and three years of internal medicine residency, she had had a total of zero discussions about trauma-informed care, breaking bad news, resilience training, grief support, or personal wellness. Instead, she felt pressured to push her physical and psychological reactions aside and always put the job first. At some point, this ethos stuck. After the weekend, Dr. Glass picked up a full panel of consults at her busy hospital. She told no one what she was going through. One of the patients on her list was a woman in her 30s, like Dr. Glass, but who had had a massive seizure while awaiting surgery for a brain tumor. The patient was in the ICU in their large teaching hospital, suddenly unable to talk to anyone or respond in any way. She was also in her third trimester of pregnancy. Dr. Glass shrugged off the idea that her case might be too much for her on her first day back. She had spent years witnessing other people's trauma and supporting them and their families through it. She hurried over to the neuro ICU, washed her hands, and quickly slid open the glass door. Like all the thousands of ICU patients she had seen, the patient had wires everywhere, connected to beeping monitors. The patient's young husband sat nearby, hyper-vigilant, searching her constantly for signs of consciousness. Dr. Glass stood quietly, taking it all in, maintaining her professional composure. But suddenly she realized the low beating sound wasn't her patient's monitor. It was the patient's fetus's heartbeat. Badum, badum, badum. Dr. Glass stood there, paralyzed, utterly without words, impotent. Feeling dizzy and confused, Dr. Glass walked behind the patient's bed and pretended to examine the photos near the window as she tried to compose herself. It all just hit Dr. Glass at once, and she was smacked with a physical grief so excruciating that she wasn't sure she could stay upright. But she wasn't the patient that day, and this wasn't the time to work through what had happened to her. So she took a deep breath and walked back around to the side of the patient's bed. In our images in clinical medicine, a nine-year-old boy who had recently emigrated from Brazil presented with a three-week history of neck swelling, fevers, and weight loss. On examination, there was fixed, tender cervical lymphadenopathy. Histopathological examination of a biopsy specimen of a lymph node in the deep left cervical region showed tissue eosinophilia, granulomatous formations, and conspicuous round structures and clusters of yeast forms. A PCR assay of lymph node tissue was positive for Paracoxioides brasiliensis. A diagnosis of paracoxidioidomycosis was made. Treatment with itraconazole was initiated, but was later changed to fluconazole owing to adverse side effects. Two months after presentation, the patient's symptoms had abated. In another image, a 51-year-old man presented to the emergency department after he had sustained blunt force trauma to the face in a fight. He received nasal packing. One hour after discharge, he returned with bloody tears, blurry vision, and eye pain. On physical examination, 
blood oozed from the upper and lower lacrimal puncta on both sides and accumulated along the margins of the lower eyelid, a finding known as hemolacria. See the video at nejm.org. A diagnosis of hemolacria resulting from retrograde blood flow through the nasolacrimal system after nasal tamponade for epistaxis was made. To treat the ongoing epistaxis, the nose was repacked and topical epinephrine was applied to the left nasal cavity. A half hour later, the bloody tears had resolved. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our podcast. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.